Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Heavy Branches Podcast. I'm Jacob. And I'm Tanner. And we're so glad you are joining us here. We hope you're having a great week. Tanner, how has your week been, man? My week's been pretty good. The last two weeks have been good. Uh, I got married, which is great. Fun stuff. We had an awesome honeymoon in Orlando. Um, had a, a lot of good times. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are some of the uh, uh, things that we would disagree with in Disney and at Universal, but uh, for the most part, it was uh, a good trip, and uh, I'm glad we got to spend that time together. And uh, she's told me she's missing me this week because I'm not with her every second. Well, but you got her all used to having you by her side every waking moment, and then you just rip yourself away. What do you expect her to feel? But no, uh, it's uh, it's been really great, and uh, I have a lot of joy from Good. from. Finally being married after feels like waiting so long. How's your oh. week been? Uh, it's been good. Super happy for you guys. Uh, was honored to do your wedding. So Yeah, that was awesome. Um, it was cool that I'll always be able to say you all were the first wedding I ever did, which I'm sure will be the first of many. Um, but yeah, super happy for you guys. Super excited to see what you guys do in the ministry because I know you two are both very committed to uh, committing the rest of your life for ministry, which is what I'm doing as well, so I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys do with that. Um, my week has been good. Today was the, or not not today, but this week was the third Sunday in a row that I've been able to fill in and preach. Uh, yeah. That's that's the most I've ever done. Um, I've never, I've done three in a row a couple times. I've never done a, a full month in a row of preaching somewhere. Um, so it's been good. I always love and really appreciate the opportunities I get <clears throat> to go preach places. This past week, I was up in uh, Buffalo, Indiana, which That's was awesome. the farthest I've ever traveled to preach. It was counting the stop in the middle for gas. It was about four hours out there and then four hours back the, the next day. So um, it was a good trip, uh, super nice and loving congregation. So it was, awesome. it was a good time up there. But, yeah, it's been good just filling preaching and doing school. Not a whole much else. I'm not that exciting of a life, but hey, that's what it is. <laughs> no, that's cool. Uh, we just want to remind you about the platforms we're on. We are on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Podcasts. And we are also on YouTube. And if you so wish to watch, not, not only listen to the podcast, but also watch the video of the podcast, that can also be found both on Spotify and YouTube. So just want to remind you of that. And as we get to our Mark Your Calendar section... There are a couple events coming up this month in October that I am really looking forward to. Um, I'll be at the prayer clinic um, in Oct- that's October 10th through 12th, which is this Tuesday through Thursday, right? Yeah, next, the, yeah, the 10th this through coming, the 12th. This coming Tuesday is yeah. when it starts. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be over in Grundy, Virginia. I am really looking forward to this. I'm I'm going with our our good friend Jacob Cabe, and yep. uh, we're going to go up. We might go up Sunday. Um, okay. And we're going to go up at least one day early and, and do a lot of fishing. Uh, there's a, a place pretty close that he found where we can fish for some smallmouth. Yeah. And that's, that, I haven't caught many smallmouth. So I, I've caught a lot of largemouth bass, but not much smallmouth. Brown bass. That's what they so call them. Brown bass. We'll be fishing for those for a couple <clears> of days before the prayer clinic. And Jacob Cabe and I share a lot of the same interests. And you, know, you do too, especially with... Uh, you know, we're both super interested in preaching and ministry. We're also both super interested in fishing. And yeah. so this is going to be, a, it's a trip we are both really looking forward to. I've talked to him about. So that's coming up October 10th through 12th. The next thing on our marker calendar section is the Grissom Refuel event, which is a time uh, where we're going to gather for fellowship, um, preaching. Um, I believe they'll have some some singing as well. And just just a great time to really refuel yourself to continue serving the Lord. Um, and that's going to be up in Indiana from October 27th through 29th. And there is a, a fantastic speaker lineup for that. Uh, a lot of guys you won't want to miss hearing. Um, so if you're able to, to make it out to Grissom for that, um, I would highly recommend it. I know I'll be there. I think Jacob Cabe will be there. Um, I know Tanner decided to, to ditch out on us on that <laughs> one. So he disappointed me earlier when he told me that. So I'm going to throw I him got under church, the bus. I got church stuff. To you have other responsibilities. I, I, I get it. I'm just giving you a hard time. But uh, lastly on our marker calendar, um, if you're ever interested in studying the Bible 
a little bit deeper than maybe you would on your own um, or, or even at a congregation, not downplaying any of that. Um, just has been my experience with LBC is it's very in-depth, which I really like. Um, but the beginning of our next semester at LBC is going to start at the beginning of January. Um, I believe that's either the 8th or the 15th. Um, so if you are inter- ever interested in learning a little more about the Bible, even if you don't want to be a preacher or a youth minister or anything, or maybe you know, you're you a, a Sunday school teacher or you do communion meditations now and then, and you, you just want to uh, deepen your studies a little bit, I know Tanner and I would both highly recommend uh, classes with LBC. Um, so that's, I think, all we have for our marker calendar section for this week. Yep. So let's grow together. Uh, in Christ as we talk about Luke chapter 7. That's where we pick up Luke chapter 7. Uh, we just want to remind you to read it, you know, read it before, read it as we go through it, and read it after. It'll help you to follow along. It'll help you to stay into in the context of the book. And we just want to remind you what last chapter was about. Last chapter, Jesus picked up... Um, the rest of his 12 disciples. Um, he preached about seeking God, loving people, and not being hypocrites. And he, we see that faith acts with Jesus as our foundation. Uh, you know, as Christians, Jesus is the foundation guiding us to bear good, good fruits. And there is a difference between good and bad fruits. And so that was all that was covered in last week's chapter, last week's podcast. This week, like I said, we pick up in chapter 7. There are 50 verses. And uh, I believe my chapter title, I forgot to write it down. Uh, What did I say my chapter title was? I think it was uh, Jesus Brings Forgiveness. Was that it? That's right. That's right. So the chapter title this week is Jesus Brings Forgiveness. And the reason I chose that is we see again, as we've seen multiple times in this chapter, but we see again Jesus uh, can forgive sins. And thinking about what the the point of this whole book is Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's it's very important that we really recognize and hone in on when he makes things happen or does things that relate to that main point, seeking and saving the lost. So he's he's here, he's come, and with as he's come, he brought the forgiveness of sins. Um, and it is only it is only Jesus Christ. It is only God that can forgive sins, and we see that as we go through this chapter. As we hop into our key thoughts from chapter 7, the first thing that I really wanted to hone in on is worthiness. Worthiness, I think, is very skewed and misunderstood sometimes. Um. <sighs> In the sense of like, are we worthy to be forgiven kind of a thing? Or yeah, what angle are you looking at worthiness from it, here? It starts there. You know, are we worthy? Sin says no. But then there's this kind of this thought in the Christian realm that once we've been saved by Jesus, then we're worthy. And I just don't see anywhere where the Bible ever teaches that we are worthy. The whole thing is we're not worthy and Jesus' righteousness comes into our lives when we allow him to save us, when we put our faith in him. It is Jesus's it is Jesus working through us in our lives. It is it is his worthiness, not our own. And I, I really wanted to point that out as we look at the first ten verses. Um You know, the question is, what makes us worthy to stand before or speak to the righteous, holy God? Because as we see this centurion, he he doesn't go to Jesus himself. And if you just read the first four verses, you're kind of like, well, okay, why did the centurion not come to himself? Did he not uh, respect Jesus enough to come before him but then we as we get a little further down we see that the centurion actually sent other people and it says 
this this is from the centurion being spoken through some of uh, his servants that he sent out. It says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. So the, centur- the centurion is recognizing his unworthiness. And so that made me ask the question, what makes us worthy to stand before or speak to the righteous, holy God? We talked a couple weeks ago about how coming before God should make us see our imperfection. And coming before God should make us see our inadequacy and our failures um, compared to God's perfection. Well, I would say the only reason that we can go stand before God like in prayer would be because of Jesus being our mediator. That's that's one of the the many great things about living under the new covenant is we have a mediator with God. We don't have to go to a priest and like they did in the Old Testament, and then the priest will will go to God on, on their behalf um, and make sacrifices and whatnot. But because Jesus is acting as our mediator between God, we can we can go directly to God without having to go to a priest or someone else. So that, that's, one, that's one aspect I would say um, about how we can be worthy to stand before God. It's not that we're worthy, it's that we have a mediator. Yeah, it, it, it is always, it's not our worthiness, but it is Christ's worthiness that through him we can be saved, we can come before God and have a relationship with him. Definitely. That is, that is taught all throughout scripture. There's not a point where we become good enough, no. where we become worthy. So if you... Uh, if not, like we were talking about coming before God, if if you don't come bef- if if you're coming before a God, if you're coming before God and you don't if you aren't humbled by his perfectness and if you're not recognizing your imperfection compared to his perfection, then you're either coming before a false god or your heart is so hard and prideful that you think you're perfect. Um, that, and those are really the only two options if you aren't seeing your own imperfection before a perfect God. And so only the perfectness of Christ makes us worthy through his sacrifice, uh, through his complete obedience. And even then, it's not, again, it's not our worthiness but his in all of this, in in everything in, in all Christianity, it's not our worthiness, but his worthiness and us being able to go through him, as you said, as our mediator. Um, and so this centurion that we see, he wasn't Jewish. He was Roman. Uh, he was uh, Greek. And therefore, he felt and was probably even convinced by some of the Jewish people that he was around, he he felt and was probably convinced by some of them that he was unworthy. Then what the Jews didn't realize is they were also unworthy because yeah. of their sin. They were deeming him unworthy because of his race, not because of uh, sin. Well, that's what the Jews thought. They thought that, well, since we are kin, we are kin to Abraham, then we're going to be fine because we have a Jewish lineage. And, and I think that this distinction of this guy, you know, he's a Greek, he's not a, a Jewish person, but he still comes to Jesus in faith. I think that's why, this is just my opinion, um, I think that's why Jesus says in verse 9, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Because for the most part, national Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah at this time. Yeah, yeah. And this guy is not Jewish. He wouldn't have had any knowledge of the Old Testament um, yet he still comes to Jesus in faith. And I think that's really what, what makes Jesus marvel at it is this, this guy is a, is a Greek. He's a non-Jew. He didn't even have the Old Testament. Yet he comes to me in faith. But the Jewish people that had the Old Testament and should be able to recognize all, that I am the Messiah, that I am the, the one they've been waiting for. You know, John the Baptist came and said, I'm, the Messiah is about to come. Jesus comes and but the Jewish people just missed it. And my, my opinion on this is that's why Jesus marvels and, and says, nowhere in Israel have I found such great faith. It's it's really um, 
almost a how do I want to how do I want to word this? It's almost like a condemnation of the Jewish people in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, he's he's elevating this man that this Greek that came to him in faith as well. Yeah, the centurion's faith, not in himself, but in the power and the perfection and the holiness and the worthiness of Jesus. Because he had that faith, Jesus was there for him in this, and we see that. It wasn't and has never been about heritage, but it's about faith. And it's not just, and and I emphasize the heritage thing because there's a lot of people today, um, if you or your family, they just go to church because the rest of the family does, uh, you know, that, that happens a lot. People just go to church because that's what my family did. That's what my grandpa did or whatever. And they don't have a deep personal faith for themselves. Um, They don't have uh, a deep personal relationship with God themselves. They're just like almost relying on what their family did. And it's it's just like a tradition of, well, that's what my family does on Sundays. You know, we we get up in the morning and go to church and, you know, we've we've done our good. And that, that's what my family does. We go to church, and that's that's really it. A a heritage faith, if you want to call it that, that that is not what saves. It is a personal faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And and, and I was like that for a long time too. Um, so I'm not speaking from a place of putting people down that are in that mindset of well, church is just what my family's always done, so I'm going to do it. I mean, I was probably almost graduated and through with high school before I really started to to build my faith on my own and maybe there's a lot of people that are in our, in our pews every Sunday that they are they are a part of this idea of well I just come to church on Sundays and mark it off my box because that's what I've always done that's what my family's raised me to do and there might be a lot of people that are actually willing and would dive right into a, a personal relationship with Jesus if if somebody were to step up and disciple them and, and lead it. And, and I know that's honestly a big reason why I wanted to go into the ministry was because um, it wasn't until somebody really stepped up and and pushed me to, to make faith more than just to go on a Sunday because my family does kind of a thing before I really took it very seriously. So... Just think about that. The church kind of has this bad habit of allowing people to just be comfortable in this heritage faith mm-hmm. instead of actually actually developing their own personal faith. And I think that's why I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we, we always hear about these statistics of such a large, large percentage of teenagers that grow up in the church you know they once they get graduate high school they either move away and go off to college or they start like a a go full-time into the workforce right after they graduate i think that's why so many the statistics say so many of those people end up leaving the church is because the only reason they were there in the first place wasn't because they had a personal relationship with jesus because they actually had a, a faith of their own they were they were there because well, their family went, and that's just what they did on Sundays, and it didn't really mean anything other than checking off their box of sitting in the pew on Sunday. Yeah, and you see so many people, like, uh, when the grandparent in the family that always came to church passes away, then the mm-hmm. family just completely stops going to church. And it was, they were just there because the grandparent expected them to be there instead yeah. of them actually having faith. Uh, moving Moving on, verses 10 and 14, I just have to point out again these miracles that Jesus is performing. Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus had healed the the slave of the centurion. And then verse 14, and he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And then the young man uh, sat up. And began to speak. Jesus, the Bible teaches and proves over and over and over again that Jesus is the Christ. Um, we read way back at the very beginning of Luke that 
Luke's purpose for writing this was to share the truths to de- to convince and to develop confidence in in people about the truth of the gospel and and I can't remember exactly what the quote is I think it's verse 4 Yeah it's in chapter 1 verse 4 I was just flipping to it he says so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught and so we're seeing here the exact truth of these miracles and Jesus proving again he is the Christ Looking at verse 13, the scripture says, When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. God is a God of mercy and compassion. And I think that gets lost a lot sometimes. I think there is uh, I almost... Uh, we, I guess it's just we look at God too singularly, singularly sometimes. Um, whether we get focused on his judgment or we get too focused on his love or grace, but there are so many things that God does and is that make him who he is uh, and make him the great and powerful and wonderful God that he is. And some of those things is his mercy and compassion. God is a God of mercy and compassion. He loves us. Uh, he loves his creation, and it, he is merciful to the needy. And we see that. We see that here in this passage. And he is compassionate to the broken. Don't quote me on this because I'm not positive if it's correct. But I, I heard someone say in a sermon once, or maybe it was like a Sunday school lesson or something. But they said that if you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you look at the life of Jesus, every time that it says he felt compassion towards either an individual or a group of people, that every time the Bible says Jesus felt compassion on someone, immediately after, it, sh- it tells us of the action that Jesus took because of that compassion. Mm. And so here it says he felt compassion for her and then said to her, do not weep. And then as we read on, we see he does more for her than just say don't weep, but... The point I'm making is is I think a lot of times we may feel compassion for someone, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ that's been struggling, whether it be with sin or just the hardships of life. Or maybe we feel compassion on people we know that are lost because we know the state of their soul. And so when we feel compassion we ought to take action on it and, do, and actually do something about it and not just be let it be an emotion that we feel and then just start filling our mind with something else. Because we see here from, from Jesus when he feels compassion, he, he does something about it and he acts on it. And like I said, don't quote me on the fact that every time it says Jesus felt compassion, he acted on it. But I, I did hear someone say that in a, in a sermon. I haven't checked it out for myself. but And it's, it's not, this is one of those cases where he's, doing a miracle to prove that he is the Christ. But that's not the only purpose of it. The other purpose is showing that he is a compassionate God. Um, in any time as Christians, we're reading the Bible and we read about mercy, his mercy and his compassion. I, I don't know about you, but I immediately think to the cross mm. because that is compassion he is, he is acting upon the compassion that he has yeah. for all mankind. You see, sin breaks us. It makes us needy for salvation from the consequences and the, the defects of sin. But Jesus mercifully and compassionately restores our brokenness, forgives our sins, and washes us clean of it. And, you know, as soon as I read this, when he felt compassion for her, I think about the compassion that he felt for all mankind. He, he, he came to this earth, and that was one of the things that he, he felt. He, I mean, he felt what we go through as human beings on this sinful world. And he did that without sin, but he felt compassion for us, knowing that because of our sin, we had to endure a consequence that, we couldn't escape ourselves yeah. and and sacrificed himself for us. It's it 
it just kind of blows my mind. And, you know, I, what's the phrase? Um, something 2020. Uh, oh, shoot. 2020 vision? No, no, no. Well, yeah, but it's like we're here now, and now that we can see the past, you, it's... Oh, um it's hindsight, hindsight thank is you. always 2020 hindsight yeah. is 2020 so you you kind of you kind of feel like you know we're in hindsight of everything that's happened in scripture but it's so hard for me sometimes to understand or believe that they couldn't see that Jesus was the Christ yet but we see here in verse 16 they're still not aware of who Jesus is fully a big goal of Luke's writing is to prove Jesus is God um and we just kind of talked about that a, a minute ago, but that's a big goal of Luke's writing. But the people that he is writing about, the people with Jesus, still were not fully grasping that Jesus was not just a prophet, but he was Emmanuel. He was God with them. Something else that comes to mind when you think about, like, they saw all of these miracles firsthanded, yet a large number of them still didn't believe. Even Judas, you know, he spent so much time with Jesus hearing him teach and preach and seeing miracles, yet we all still know what Judas did. He betrayed him and would never really truly place his faith in him and being the Messiah. He might have believed it, but he didn't put his trust in it and actually change his life because of it. And So the thought that that leads back to for me is sometimes you hear people today that that are not Christians or maybe they don't believe in God. Well, they'll say, well, maybe if God just did some kind of a sign or some kind of miracle today that I and I could see it that then I would believe. For a while, um, years ago, I was I kind of almost agreed with that. Like, why doesn't God do miracles anymore today? So that you know we can see it. And I and I don't want to say that God can't do miracles anymore. I believe that you know if people are sick and the church gets around and prays that God can can intervene miraculously there but as far as the people of God being able to go in the name of Jesus do miracles that does not happen anymore yeah. and I've wondered in the past well why not because I've got friends that don't believe or I know people that don't believe that if I could go do a miracle I bet they maybe they would and they'd be able to see it for themselves but we see a lot of evidence through the gospels that there was all kinds of people that saw firsthand miracles happen and they still wouldn't believe and so that's kind of kind of given me a new perspective as of more recently of even if miracles still could happen today, that doesn't mean that everyone would just believe because we see lots of examples of people that saw miracles firsthanded but still refused to believe. Yeah, yeah. Now we get into a part of Luke chapter 7 that's very interesting, and it just so happened that after our first or I think it was our second podcast we got asked the question by Bruce Linder um, he asked us the question in and it relates to verses 18 through 28 and the question was John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus and probably knew him growing up John was aware of his role to be the one to tell about the coming Messiah why do you think John questioned if Jesus was the Messiah? He sent his followers to ask him. So the, the question is, why do you think John asked if Jesus was the Messiah? And we see that in verse 19, John says to two of his disciples, are you, he, he's sending them to Jesus to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? First, I would like to say, please ask more questions, <laughs> because uh, that's really enjoyable for us. Uh, we love to study the scriptures and to answer uh, as we have this one, and uh, so please ask more questions. Second, this was a great question. Uh, we find this circumstance where Jesus asks, or sorry, where John asks are you the expected one also in Matthew chapter 11 verses 2 through 30 so that kind of helps with the context so read both those passages as we as you 
follow along with us. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 30. And there are several things to consider with this with this question that John asks of Jesus. And, and first, John was clearly very aware of his calling as the forerunner of the Messiah. And we see that in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He, he is very aware of what his purpose is. Second, John was in prison at the time of asking this question. He was set to die any day, and that could have caused him to have some doubt. Uh, and then when we were actually originally answering this question, Jacob added, when we consider the type of Messiah Israel expected, we know Israel expected a, a Messiah that would come and rule as it, with an earthly kingdom, mm-hmm. basically become king of the world, um, and be king of Israel and restore Israel to glory. And that was the expectation. And so Jesus not being that caused many questions. And if he was supposed to be that, why would his his main forerunner be in jail and be imprisoned? Yeah, so with the expectation for a Messiah to come in and establish an earthly kingdom, how could John be in jail? Um, John wouldn't be the only biological family that Jesus had to doubt him. Jesus' brothers uh, didn't believe until witnessing the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, His circumstances of being in jail could also have caused him to want to see, have some reassurance and certainty. Even if he wasn't quite doubting, maybe he just needed a little, a little encouragement, basically. I also wonder, too, if maybe this this question wasn't only for John himself. Part of me wonders if he sent his disciples to ask Jesus this almost for the disciples' sake more so than his sake because, I mean, he, he had devoted his whole life and purpose to this mission of preparing the way for Jesus to come. And I wonder if he almost felt hindered from being in jail from doing that, so he wanted to get back in touch with his disciples and send them back to Jesus and have them ask him that question themselves to almost reassure himself that he had prepared the way and his disciples were understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, it's really interesting that you say that because it wasn't as though John had quit speaking about the Messiah to come when he went to jail. John was continuing to confidently preach of the coming kingdom, even though he was in jail. Yeah. And even though he was soon to be murdered for doing so, uh, it doesn't seem to me like someone that really had doubt and uncertainty if he's still preaching it, even though he's on death row because of it. Yeah. Um, so this leaves us with a few possibilities of why he would have asked the question. Um, some say that John asked the question in order to settle the questions in his disciples' minds, not his own, which is kind of what you just mentioned. Mm. Some say that John's persecution in prison had brought him to the brink of despair, and he was pleading with Jesus for help. Uh, some say that he was puzzled and wanted to know Jesus's role and where it was leading. If it was not to be what John expected, what should John expect? So he's kind of wondering, okay, what is this actually supposed to be? And then the fourth thing is, the fourth possibility is that John did not doubt so much as he was determined to prod Jesus push Jesus and put pressure on him so that he would be forced to make an aggressive change in his campaign, an aggressive change in his ministry. Because John's in prison now, on death row. And John sees, okay, Jesus has to get going with his ministry before the same thing happens to him. Yeah. Uh, So the question was made publicly in front of a lot of people, both friends and foes, and it forced Jesus to answer in the presence of all of them the question, who are you? Yeah. Uh, And this proclamation of being the Messiah would rapidly excel his ministry very quickly. So one of these four options, uh, of these four options, I'm most confident in the fourth. Uh, I don't, 
I don't think that John was incapable of doubting, but I do believe he was, as I said before, very aware of his calling. I believe it to be a mixture of the four. It, it could be a mixture of the four possibilities, but what I'm most confident in, and this is this is the the this is the biblical. You know, this is what we find right in the scripture. What I'm most confident in is that John the Baptist was on death row. In knowing his mission as the forerunner, he did not want to die before accomplishing that mission. Yeah. And so that would require two things from John. The first thing is certainty that Jesus was the Messiah. And the second thing is certainty that Jesus's ministry had strongly lifted off the ground. That that was his goal as the forerunner. And so this question from John would have been accomplished. It, it, this, this que- ask, John asking this question would have accomplished both of those things. Sure. Um, as we see, following the question, Jesus strongly responds to the question of who he is. So there is a certainty Jesus was the Messiah. And... Because of that, his ministry began to steam forward like a, a train very quickly. And it's always kind of hard, you know, to answer a question that the Bible doesn't answer extremely clearly. And so there, there's a bit of speculation on it, but we we do our best in that scenario to look, take a look at the context of what else the Scripture tells us and put forth an educated guess based upon the context and, you know, if we get to heaven and none of those reasons were what was going on in John's mind, then my faith isn't going to be shaken. That's okay. Um, and John's goal was to accomplish his mission before he died. And he knew he was about to die. And, and that is what we see. I mean, that, that he is trying to accomplish his purpose, no matter what he was thinking in his mind, we know he was trying to accomplish his mission before he died. So thank you for the question, and if anyone else has questions about things, we would love to uh, do our best to discuss it and maybe give you an answer. So, all right, uh, verse twenty-eight. I did want to. We did want to read that. It says, "I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he." So. Out of out of the whole chapter, this is probably the verse that I wrestled with the most this week. Why would Jesus say this? He says that the person that is the very least in the kingdom of God is greater than even John, who is the greatest of all all people who are born of woman. So all mankind. I, so I, yeah, out of the entire human race, everyone born from a woman, John's the greatest. But the person who is the very least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John. So the question I wrestled with this week, and the question that I'll ask you, Tanner, is what is so great about being in the kingdom of God that would cause Jesus to say this? The first thing that comes to my mind is the very fact that when a person enters the kingdom of God, that is the time, that is the moment when they, when their relationship with God is restored through Jesus, and they're no longer they're no longer separated from God because of sin. They've they've been forgiven by the and their sins have been washed away by His blood, and their relationship with God is restored. And not only is their relationship with him restored, and now you you know you can have that relationship, but along with that comes the promise that one day we are actually going to be with God again in mm-hmm. heaven. And that is I mean that is the biggest thing. That is the most important part of this. So may- maybe we should also address this how does a person enter the kingdom of God? If if that's the main thing is, you know, the, the very best thing about being in the kingdom of God means that you have been reconciled back to God. Your relationship that was once destroyed from your sin 
your sins have been forgiven. You've been restored back to a relationship with God. Relationship with God. How does a person get in on that? Maybe is where we should start this whole discussion. Well, I I want to pull something up. Um, I heard this while we were at family camp, and I just I I love it because you can't argue with the words of Jesus. Okay, and what it was called was the red letter plan of salvation because it's the red letters being the words of Jesus. Yeah. Okay. And so this is what Jesus, these are, these are quotes from Jesus. It says, Jesus said, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter eight, verse 24. So what's it take to enter the kingdom of God? Well, you first have to believe in, in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Okay. The second thing is, Jesus said, Any I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before my Father in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verse 8. You know, we, we, call, we call it the confession of faith before, uh, before we get baptized. Yeah. But those who are willing and do confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and know that he died on the cross for their sins, and know who he is and all he's done, those that, are, are, that believe in it and are willing to confess it, Jesus says he will confess them before the Father in heaven. Then Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise all perish. So repentance is a requirement of, of having a relationship with Jesus, entering into the kingdom of God. And if you don't, the, the other promise is you will perish. perish yeah. And that's in Luke chapter 13, verse 5. And then the, the, the last thing I'll read, Jesus said, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. And that's in Mark sixteen sixteen. And so all of those are quotes of Jesus. And so in that last one, he who has been baptized, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. So belief, confession, repentance, and baptism, you know, that those are Straight from the word, the mouth of Jesus, those are requirements of entering into this kingdom of God. That's that's really well said. Do you remember who said who did that little thing at family camp? That was Jeff Fall. Jeff, if I remember right. And yeah. he said he said that he had heard it from somebody else. Um, but also, Jeff Fall is extremely intelligent and. Uh, has his sermon was great. It was on James, if I remember. But, yeah, about the tongue, right? Yeah, but that that's getting off topic. Yeah. But he was Anyways, the one that said it. So when we discuss, okay, why is Jesus placing such a high emphasis here on being in the kingdom of God? Because a lot of times, I think, when we're on this verse, uh, Luke seven twenty eight, when he says, "No one born of woman is greater than John." Majority of the time in my Christian life, when I've heard this verse taught and preached on, the emphasis is on how good of a person John is, because he's got to be pretty pretty good for Jesus to say, no one born of a woman is greater than him. And I, I see where they're coming from with that. But I honestly feel like the main point that Jesus is driving home here is found in the, in the latter half of the verse. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he, greater than John. And so when we think about, okay, well, what is this thing of the kingdom of God and how do I get in on it? Because that seems like a pretty good thing to do if <laughs> the least person in the kingdom is even greater than John, who's the best out of all people. It seems like the kingdom of God is something I don't want to get, on, get in on. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we see what Jesus has said. Believe in him, confess faith in him, repent and be baptized okay so we're in on that then how does that actually change us what is actually so great about it and the main thing as tanner said is that we are forgiven of our sins and we have a hope that one day when the time comes whether jesus returns or we pass away 
we will be with God. Um, and, and there are so many other different places you could go, and, and I'll, I'll throw out a few ideas as to what else is so great about the kingdom of God. But that is the main thing that is great about being in the kingdom is that we have been forgiven of our sins, and we can have a, a hope, a certainty about going to heaven. And we have we have this restored relationship with God that was broken because of sin in the first place. So another thing that I thought about this week about, cause that's a, that's, I've really pondered this for most of this week, what is so great about being in the kingdom of God? What, one thing that came to my mind is it gives us a very reasonable perspective towards life. Yeah. And that that's true in a few ways. So I've been studying apologetics um, a lot a lot the past year, but especially this semester at, at school. And when you look at all the different evidence for the creation account and what we find in Genesis, and you look at evidence for the Big Bang, and you look at uh, some of the laws of thermodynamics and how we see how that impacts creation, and we look at the complexity that this universe was designed with and all of the different things that were so finely tuned in order for life to be on this earth, the most reasonable perspective to how we got here is that there is a God that created all of this. Uh, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember who gave this quote. I heard it from Brian Schultz, my apologetics professor, but I don't know if he made it up or if he got it from someone. But uh, the atheist or agnostic says that everything was created out of nothing by nothing. Everything that there is was created out of nothing by nothing. But the Christian says, or the believer in God says, an, an eternal and all-powerful being created everything out of nothing. And so is it more reasonable to believe that something, or in other words, a, a, an all-powerful God created everything that there is out of nothing? Or is it more reasonable to say nothing created everything out of something? Well, obviously, the first. So it gives us a reasonable perspective to how we got here. But it also gives us a reasonable perspective to the trials and difficulties of life. Because let's face it, life has its moments of pain, of disappointment, of trials and temptations and struggles. But being in the kingdom of God allows us to have a very reasonable perspective to the difficulties of life. Because we know no matter what goes on here, no matter how bad it might get, there will be a day where the, the pain and the sorrows and the troubles of this life are no longer a factor because we will be in eternity in heaven back with God. And as you just preached Sunday, it gives us a reasonable perspective towards other people that we wouldn't have unless we had experienced that same thing that we are now seeing other people in mm. in the first place. Somebody listened to my sermon. That's good. <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is uh, Jacob, like I said, Jacob just preached on this Sunday, but when we become Christians, we now have a reasonable a, a perspective towards other people realizing that they need the salvation that we received from Jesus. And so we no longer sh we no longer should as Christians view people as just another human being. We shouldn't view them and I'm specifically talking about people outside of Christ. Yeah. It, we should no longer view them as uh you know somebody we don't like because they do do things wrong. We need to view them in the state that they're in and that is a person that lost is lost and needs Jesus. Absolutely. And that, that's another thing I thought about this week when I was thinking of what is so great about the kingdom of God. It gives us all purpose for life. Yeah, That's something that no matter what your religious background is, if you're any religion out of the hundreds that there is, or if you're not religious at all, something that is just common among all of mankind throughout all time that I've noticed is everyone wants or desires a purpose for life. They always wonder, why am I here whether they, whether if they think about it through why has God put me here or how did I end up here or 
everyone wonders about a purpose. And if you're you're a member of the kingdom of God, God has given you a purpose, mm-hmm. and that is to help as many other people as you can get to the kingdom, because their eternal state, whether they're lost or they're saved, is infinitely more important than any other distinction about them that has to do with just the worldly side. Yeah. Picking up in verse 29, I'm going to go ahead and read, read verses 29 and 30. It says, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. I kind of want to emphasize a couple things here, but the first thing is God is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. Um, people, People always want to start by asking questions like, does God really want us to do this? Or is that really what God meant by this verse? Or do we really have to follow that? and et cetera, et cetera. And all of these questions get asked before asking the question that should be asked first. And the first question that should be asked is, who is God? And I say that, and that's the case for, like, every circumstance. Before you can ever share the gospel, before you can ever even share the gospel with somebody, the first thing that they need to know is who God is. If they don't know that the God is the, that God is the creator of the universe and that he, he has power and he is just and loving, if he doesn't know if they don't know those things, then they're never going to believe and understand the gospel. So that question who is God is is extremely important and essential. So and and this is where so many mistakes happen when studying the Bible, when sharing the gospel, when, there, this is where so many mistakes happen is we we either forget about who God is or we don't ask that question and, and, and remind ourselves and confirm, okay, this is who God is and that's why he makes this command or says whatever he says yeah. in the scriptures. If we don't really know God, we can't truly understand what he expects from us. Um, and I want you all to take verses 29 and 30 into consideration with this thought. The, the people that recognized that God was a God of justice, they are the ones that had been obedient in repentance in, John, in John's baptism. Those, the Pharisees, in verse 30, who probably knew God as just from all of the studying and knowledge that they had, they should have known that. They probably did know that. They, sh- they should have, and not only the Pharisees, the next section is, and the lawyers, and I don't know if your Bible has a little footnote. Um, my NASB does. It says, instead of lawyers, it could also be translated as experts in the Mosaic law. So, so they should have known. They should have known God was just, but they chose to reject that. So it isn't just, it isn't just knowing who God is. But it is choosing to accept who God is. As, as James says, Satan and the demons believe. That doesn't do any good for him. So many people read the Bible and they're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, so I'm not going to believe in it. <laughs> well, sorry, but that's not how that works. I heard somebody say once that the Bible is not like a buffet where you can just... Come do the all the all the different books in here between the Old and New Testament and look at all the different verses and it's like well I like I want some of this one and some of this one and some of this one like you're picking out food that you want at a buffet you don't pick and choose what you want to believe and obey in the Bible it's not a buffet it's all of it is God's word and so all of it is binding for us God is perfect and we are not and when we see something that we don't like or we don't agree with that doesn't mean that. That is our imperfection showing. <laughs> that we we were talking about when we become when we come before God, we should see our imperfection. When we don't like or agree with something in the scriptures, 
God's word, that is our imperfection showing. And that happens a lot for me, man. I'm reading the words of Jesus saying, love your enemies and do good to those who, who curse you. Man, I don't want to do that. There's there's a lot of things the Bible says to do that I don't always want to, and but I've got to remind myself, God is God and I'm not. Yeah. So the Pharisees, who probably knew God is just, they instead chose to reject that, reject God, and they weren't obedient. And I tell my youth group this all the time. If you truly love God, you will obey him. If you truly love God, you will obey him. And I want to take that a step further. It's not only if you truly love God, you will obey him. It's if you know God, you will love him. And if you love God, you will want to know him more. And if you know him better, if you know who God is, you will faithfully obey him because you love and respect him. I like it. It's good stuff. Now, moving down a little a little more into the into the chapter, looking at verses 37 and 38. I'll go ahead and read those. It says, "And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Aren't we all?" And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with her hair on her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Uh, A lot of people don't really understand uh, when it says she was standing behind him at his feet. Um... Now, I'm just going to give a quick explanation. Back then, the tables were not like the table that we commonly sit at where, you know, we're up in a chair and the table's like, you know, knee to waist high. Uh, The tables that people, that they ate at back then were real low to the ground, like below your knee. And like almost like elbow to shoulder length because they would actually... It's when it says recline, that's what it means. They would lay with their feet out away from the table up next to the table like this. Hmm. Um, and so he was, Jesus would have been laying at the table with his, you know, his head near the table and his feet would have been out. So she would have been behind him and his feet would have been back there and she would have proceeded to wash his feet. But that's not the main point of why I wanted to look at these verses. The reason I wanted to look at these verses is we talk a lot about faith and what that is, and we just have to emphasize that when you put your faith in Jesus, it is giving your whole self. It's not just giving a little bit. It's giving everything you've got. And I recently discovered uh, when I was studying John chapter 13, I've brought that up a couple times, but I recently discovered that culturally— the head of a person represented power and honor for them. And so they found dignity in that, in, in, their, in their head. Um, and she was, she was not just doing something dirty, this woman. She wasn't just doing something that was considered dirty by washing the feet. But she was offering a noble part of herself to Jesus her head um so specifically for the women the hair of their head was viewed much differently than women view their hair today she gave jesus her honor and her dignity when she did this um and i i don't want that to be taken in an inappropriate way um we have a when we talk about a woman giving up her dignity it's viewed differently that's not what i'm talking about she did this in a humble way. And I, I, I want to point out two things. The first thing is, what do you find dignity in? That's my question for everybody. What do you find dignity in? Too many find dignity in the wrong things. And are you willing to give your whole self? Are you willing to give your whole self, even your dignity, to Jesus? 
Meaning, are you willing to give up any honor that you think you deserve? So it's not it's not honor you have, and it it might be you might have some people may have honored you, and you know you ha- you have to lay that aside and 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 give it to Jesus. But it's also laying down this it's pride laying down this honor that you think you deserve because of what you've done laying down this honor that you think you deserve because of how you look or what your because of how your hair is or i mean whatever giving up that honor that you think you deserve knowing Jesus deserves honor and not us you have to give everything to him and Maybe even if it's the things that are the most important to you. Sometimes it even comes down to things that we need. Not just things we want, but things we need. And honestly, as a Christian, there are things that I discover all the time that I need to give up for Jesus. Um, it isn't something that is, it's not just like this one-time thing. There are things all the time that I, I realize, okay, I, I need to give up this for Jesus. Well, we'll, we'll see in a couple chapters that, and uh, I think it's Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says that we have to deny ourselves and mm-hmm. take up our cross if we want to follow him. And we'll discuss that in more detail, I'm sure, when we get there. But denying yourself and... Denying, maybe living the living your life the way that you would want to live it if you were your Lord, is is kind of the idea there. Um, but if we're going to follow Jesus, there are definitely going to be things that we're going to be ha- we're going to have to be willing to give up. And it's it is a daily thing. So and you, it's not always constantly. It's not always sinful things either. It is sinful things we have to give up. But sometimes it's giving up something that is okay or something that's good, but if we're doing too much of it and it's getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus, sometimes we're going to have to give those things up too. Yeah. As we wrap up the chapter, I it kind of goes along with what we just talked about, you know, giving of your whole self. It's There's a difference between just believing uh, there's a difference between just doing, just trying to obey and actually having a faith that saves. We see here with this woman, she is giving everything she has, right? And this Pharisee that Jesus is eating with, his name was Simon. This Pharisee questions Jesus about this woman because he feels that this woman, because she's such a horrible sinner, shouldn't even be touching him, and Jesus shouldn't be okay with her touching him. Yeah. And Jesus teaches this Pharisee a lesson as the chapter ends in verses 40 through, through 50. And what we find, the point of his lesson, we, we kind of see him wrap it up in a, in a, in a bow, if you want to say that, in verse 50 when he says, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What we see from this woman and from Jesus giving her the forgiveness of sins. Remember, we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is brings forgiveness. That's the whole point of his ministry, and we, we see that really throughout the chapter, but it kind of wraps up here in verse 50. Jesus brings forgiveness. Is Jesus brings forgiveness for those that have true faith. Faith that acts, not just a a belief. Really, if you truly believe something, you will do it. Um, faith is is belief and action. It 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 obeys. Um, Absolutely. So faith acts in humility and love, and we see that from this woman. She gives up everything. Jesus. And we also see that no matter how low people may view you, no matter how dirty and nasty and sinful people may say that you are, as long as you still have breath in your lungs, 
it is not too late and you are not too far gone to come to Jesus in faith and have him say to you, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It also teaches us that it doesn't matter. What matters most is what Jesus says of you. But faith acts in humility and love. It acts in sacrifice and offering. It acts in giving up and giving. Giving up and giving to the Lord. Good stuff. You got anything else? I believe that'll be all for Luke chapter 7. It was a pleasure to go through it with you as always. As always. As always. We want to thank you all for listening. We want to tell you to like, comment, as we said earlier, ask questions. We, we love when we get the opportunity to answer questions and, and study the Bible and really, really allow the Bible to speak and, and answer those questions. Uh, follow us, subscribe. Don't forget to hang out with us next week. Have true faith that acts in humility and love offering and sacrifice, giving up and giving. May grace, mercy, and peace be with you. And go bear fruit and so prove to be one of Jesus' disciples.